Good morning. Uh, our, this morning's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. We will read, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they, as they were destined to do. As Pastor Greg already mentioned, um, Pastor Matt is at Refuge City Church. Today they are probably what we can definitely consider a sister church uh, to renovation. They were planted a year after we were in downtown Dayton uh, by Pastor John Pope. Uh, he's been here several times over the years to preach, um, but more than that, he has been a just enormous encouragement behind the scenes, uh, particularly to Matt, but also to myself. Um, and he is largely responsible for um, some of the material that we use at renovation. Um, you'll see at the bottom a little asterisk on our house gathering manual and a lot of things is that, that they've been a huge help to us at, uh, right there. So he is uh, preaching over there with them today. Uh, my name, if you are new here today, is uh, Pastor Rusty. I'm glad to have you guys here today. It's my privilege to bring the word to you. As we continue in First Peter, uh, we're well into chapter 2 now today and um, have been tracing really the overall picture of the greatness of our salvation. It's something that has come up weekly because that is Peter's main theme, his main concern. It's what he's pushing them to. In fact, he begins the book by talking about their election into this great salvation. In fact, they have been chosen for a special place in the family of God. And we move on then to see the great benefits that come with that and the surety of our salvation, that it is, in fact, what our souls most long for, and we as believers have received that, and then we see that it is going to be held forever. It is something that is protected. It is secure. It's not something that we have to fight for. It's already been earned. And so now we as believers can come to the beginning of chapter 2, and we're told, therefore, so that... Therefore, so that we can pursue Him. We can put off these other things and we can chase down holiness, right? As we enter into this passage, it's a, a little funny for me because I, I used this passage a great deal at the beginning of our Christmas series this past year. Uh, so this is still relatively fresh for me. Uh, but what I hope that you, you see then today is a little bit more, obviously, fuller treatment of this text. Um, but we really want to get into the, the encouragement that is dropped in on us here. You see, when we talked at Christmas about the paradox of Christmas, the idea that God, particularly Jesus, is both a stumbling block, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, but he is also the sure foundation, the cornerstone. How can he be both at the same time? And we talked about the danger of trying to just pay tokenism to God during Christmas is just recognize him as the baby 
And today we're going to develop that picture even more as we look at this passage. The title for today's sermon is Chosen and Precious. When we look at this passage, we see uh, a huge comparison happening through, through all of it. And so to the best of my ability, I want to set up these two giant comparisons that we see. And last week we talked about the idea particularly of the word, and that is going to be the foundation for today because it just flows right into what we're dealing with. And we talked about our spiritual diets. Uh, and much like, uh, unlike golf where you want a, a low number and a spiritual diet, you want as big of a number on the scale as possible, right? Uh, something that I'm used to seeing versus probably the rest of you. Um, but in the spiritual sense, that would be great for everyone, right? And when we talk about our spiritual diet, the idea of what we consume and what we taste and what we enjoy and what we process and what we hold on to, the fact that all of that together shows that God is good. He's tasty. It's a, something that we can be in all the time. And as we move into this week, he shifts metaphors a little bit from this idea of tasting into this structural sense. And so rather than asking how your diet is looking, I want to ask how is your house looking? How's your house looking? We talked about spiritual diets. How's your house looking now? And for some of you, I just brought on a sense of dread that you were trying to escape just for a few hours. I apologize. I know that some of you, myself included, have been cleaning house. Um, some of you um, have been Netflixing or reading the, the Marie method, the Marie Kondo method, and asking yourself, does this spark joy in my life? Um, and actually, I think that's a really appropriate question today. When you look at your house, this idea of does it spark joy is important. But unlike her method of going through all of your belongings and saying, does this spark joy in me? No, then throw it away. Get rid of it. Yes, keep it. In this case, it's not what your house is filled with. It's the whole house itself. Does the house spark joy? You see, as, if spring ever comes and we begin <laughs> cleaning our houses and making room for things, I want us to think not just about what occupies the room, but about the whole house, right? The house itself. You see, some of you come today with a house, not your, necessarily your home, but your spiritual house in disrepair. It doesn't spark joy. In fact, it may be the opposite. It may be a sense of, of dread or hopelessness even. Now, our passage today is designed to help with that. Peter's design for us today is to be encouraged. It's to be encouraged. Why? Well, because of what we stand on, what we are joined together with. I found myself in preparing this passage and studying it that it was hard for me to maintain a sense of joy throughout. It was hard for me to maintain a sense of joy throughout the passage. I keep wanting to, and I will today, spend a good bit of time in the warning section. And I, I was wondering, why am I struggling so much to to stay with the joy, the encouragement part of this passage. And there's something that we have to note at the beginning. The warning that this passage is paired against is not just a simple, don't touch that, you'll burn yourself. The warning that this passage is paired with is that of ultimate and utter total destruction. And so the reason that I, I felt that I had a hard time remaining in the joy and encouragement part of this passage particularly when it came to preaching and applying, is because what it's set up against is so big, so massive, the, the, the consequences of failing to heed the warning of this passage, the gravity of that is absolutely enormous. 
Now, what, what's good about that is once we recognize that, then we will see how much bigger the joy stands in opposition to that. But the problem, I think, with me coming to this passage, and I imagine with you, is that coming into this, we go, oh, awesome, Jesus is my cornerstone. I really like that song. Oh, no, look what stands against us. And then we don't bring it back around to realize how big the promise is that stands against the warning. And so today, we need to start with, I don't understand all of this passage. I don't understand what it means for Christ to actually be my cornerstone. What does that have to do with the Jewish temple? I don't get all that. What I do see is a huge warning. I do see that. So let's recognize the gravity of that warning and then turn and look back at the promise. And I want to try to develop that promise today first. You see, when we talk about the cornerstone in this passage, it's, it's the first stone laid. Some of you already know that. Many of you probably growing up in the church have heard this before. But what I don't know that you might not know is whether or not you know its function. Like, I get that it's first and it's obviously at the corner, but what does it do? And we have to understand that it has to be the most perfectly cut stone because, you see, what the cornerstone would be was what the house would be. It's not in your notes. I did have them put it on the screen. I think that is incredibly important for us to recognize is that what the cornerstone would be was what the house would be. The lines of the cornerstone become the lines of the house. cornerstone was so important that it almost usually always cost at least as much as the rest of the house would be. 50% of the finances and work and labor that go into constructing a home or a temple or any building in this era would go into the quarrying, the selection, the refining of the cornerstone. You see, when you don't start from square, you end up with some of my first woodworking projects. When you don't start square, everything else just goes wrong. And see, in our modern homes, we can hide all of those cracks with trim. You wonder why you have trim in your house? It's because people did a terrible job hanging the drywall. And before that, they did a terrible job putting up the two-by-fours, the studs. And before that, they had a poor foundation. But at the end of the day, you can slap it all on there. And as long as you have four inches of trim at the bottom on a baseboard, you can hide that two-inch gap. You're good. But here with stones, why do you have a rim of stones around the bottom? Okay. Trim. <laughs> we can paint it, right? No, from here, if they don't lay the rest of the stones right, then it gets wonky. It gets crazy. And it makes it really hard to put a roof, for instance, on it. That actually has to be geometrically sound. And so for us, your cornerstone dictates what your house looks like. And for some of us, your roof is falling in because your house is not square. We have to recognize that what the cornerstone will be is what the house will be. And so it's with that emphasis, that much value, that Peter reaches back into the Old Testament and pulls out for us this picture of what it means to have our lives lined up on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. The first thing I want you to see today in your notes is draw near that you might be built up. 
Draw near that you might be built up. Peter's just told us earlier in this chapter that the words of Scripture are the words of the Lord. And so to read or listen to Scripture is to hear the Lord speak. That's where we ended last week. To take his good and his nourishing words into our heart, right? To drink the milk of the word is to taste again and again what he's like. Because in the hearing of the Lord's words, we as believers experience the joy of personal fellowship, relationship with the Lord himself. If you missed the gravity of that last part last week, you got to start there. Everything that we're getting ready to talk about is built on the fact that we are in a personal relationship with God. Not a God-like figure. Not one of many gods. Not the best philosophy there is, but in relationship with God Himself. That is the fundamental starting point. And Peter launches into this relationship by saying, as you come to Him, as you draw near to Him, whether to hear Him speak or simply into His presence, as you come to Him. What an assumption, right? If you're in relationship with Him and you know that it tastes good, you'll come back. You'll come back again. And so Peter assumes that the relationship is ongoing and we come and draw near to Him. He calls us, I'm going to go out of order a little bit to try to tie these ideas together. We come to him as a holy priesthood, he says, to offer spiritual sacrifices. You see, all believers now, all believers, not just the priests of Israel, but all believers now enjoy the great privilege that was once reserved only for the priests of the Old Testament to draw near to God and worship. Now, rather than coming to the altar, even to the holy place in Jerusalem, we now come to Him in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Emmanuel, God with us. God Himself tabernacled, put on flesh among men so that He might be in relationship with us. And now we New Testament believers under the New Covenant can draw near to God Himself. And we are being built up. And this idea of as we continually come to Christ. An in initial faith, First, and then of course in ongoing worship and prayer, we are being built into a spiritual house. And so looking at your house, have you come to Him? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? And are you coming to Him? In our worship, we're being built up. In our prayer, we're being built up. These two Items reveal much. Let's look at these two. Because the design is that we, now priests, right, would draw near. Because we have much to do. We're supposed to offer these sacrifices that he's talking about. And so the question first is, do you worship, right? We're getting ready to look at the quality of Jesus by the Father's design. But first answer, do you worship? Before we look at how majestic and precious and great Jesus is in detail... Right now, are you, do you, in a pattern of worship? Do you see Him as most good, as most glorious in your life? 
Do you see him as the most gracious being? The one that is holy and can offer grace. You see him as great. You see, as you know from our DNA material, if you're in that, and certainly by our preaching by now, too often we see ourselves as those things. I am the most good being. I know what is most good, not just for my life, but for yours, I'm sure. (laughs) We see ourselves as the most great one, as the glorious one. We see ourselves as those things, and so our lack of worship reveals that really we've just been worshiping ourselves all along. As we talk about, we are always worshiping. It's just an issue of what we're pointed at. Too often, again, we are pointed at ourselves. And so what's a good gauge, you might be asking, of whether or not you worship? Of, Of whether you see God, Jesus, particularly as good and glorious, gracious and great. What's a good gauge for that? A prayer. I think prayer is a fantastic gauge for that. Because prayer, by its very definition, is a submission that we are not all of those things. We are not those things. It's a personal, both, both private and public, it's a personal display that we are not all-powerful. That we are not all-controlling. That we are not all-glorious. And that we are not all-good. It's an acceptance that we need something other, someone other than ourselves, something extra of us, because we are not sufficient. And so prayer in your life is a good indication of where you are on the scale of worship. In my life, when prayer is low, it is often because I'm being self-reliant whether in my intellect, in my skills, in my strength, and whatever it may be, I am self-reliant. How many sermons I've prepared where I don't pray over my text until Tuesday. I spent a whole day working through and trying to work everything out myself, and I'm stuck, and I can't figure out why, because I'm being self-reliant. I know how to parse the text. I know how to break down the language. I know how to look at these different things. I know where it's talking about things in other parts of Scripture. But I have no idea how to preach it and no idea how to apply it. Because I'm self-reliant. And so in prayer, the very fact that we submit by saying, I cannot please will you. is a good indication of worship. Because as long as we remain pointed at ourselves, our prayer lives will be silent. And so the question then you've got to ask is when we talk about worship and we talk about prayer, particularly being the two main components of what we as priests in the New Covenant are supposed to do, we have to ask the other question of, well, where? Not just what do I do or how do I do it, but where do I do that? Well, the question of where do these things happen is simply the house of God. It was once a building, but now it's a people. Now it's a people, and we see that in our text, that we are being built together like living stones into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. It's a we being built together to a spiritual house. So in the house of God that was once a building, it's now a people, we do these things. And so it's interesting then that personal devotion to Christ through the word in worship and in prayer increases corporate integration into the church. 
Personal devotion to Christ through the Word increases corporate integration into the church. What does this mean? If your pattern of life is to pull away, you are not being built up. If your pattern of life is to drift around, maybe from church to church, body to body, relationship to relationship, you are not being built up. If your pattern of life is to consume rather than to give, read sacrifice from our text, you are not being built up. Because we are being built up together as a spiritual house. The more you, as a living stone, align your house with the bigger house, the more your house looks like the bigger house. Do you see that? The more you, as a living stone, align your spiritual life, your house, with the bigger house, the church, the more that your house, your spiritual life, looks like the church of Christ. So how is your house looking? Maybe your house looks more like a fun house. It's all wonky. There's walls that stick out at weird angles. There's stairs that go to nowhere and doors that don't open. (laughs) Why is that? Why is that? Maybe you don't worship. You don't pray. We're not doing these things. Worship and prayer are obviously stand-ins for the spiritual disciplines of life because it's centered on the Word, right? Just as we saw in verse 3. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If, if you taste and see that the Lord is good then we are being built together. So, so, so why? Why is it that maybe our house looks like a fun house? Why are we not being built the right way? Why are we have all these weird angles? Why are we not centered on that cornerstone? How does a house get to looking like that? And like most things in life, it starts at the bottom. It starts at the bottom. Next thing I want you to see today is that Jesus is the life foundation. Jesus is the life foundation. So what does Peter tell us about Jesus? It says that he's the living stone. What does that mean? It means he's superior to the Old Testament temple. That temple was made of dead stones. He's a living stone. He's chosen. He's by, this is by God's choosing, right? God's estimation of value and worth versus man's estimation of value of, and worth, right? Because according to man's evaluation, he was rejected. But God said, wrong. It is the best cornerstone, and he chose Jesus for that. And this, again, is an example in, in chapter 1, verse 1 of chosen. This is a very familiar, common word for Peter. The idea of election of God's choosing and his will is foundational to this book. In chapter 1, verse 1, here in this text, and again in chapter 2, verse 9. The idea of being chosen is huge when it comes to the power and will of God. He also talks about him as precious, chosen and precious. Precious means highly valued, right? Or esteemed. An apt term, I would say, to describe God's evaluation of his son. And also to suggest how we as believers should esteem our Lord. Is he precious to us? You think of Gollum from Lord of the Rings, Smeagol, 
and the ring is his precious, right? What does that mean to him? It consumes him. It is the only thing that he thinks about. Without it, he is nothing. He drives himself to ultimate danger, lays everything on the line in order to get the precious, even, spoiler alert, up to the very end. Is he precious to us? And finally, he calls him the cornerstone. He says, I, I, God, Yahweh, lay a stone, a cornerstone. It was rejected, but it is now of supreme position. It's on this stone that we are to be built. To trust in Jesus Christ is to make him the cornerstone of your life. It's to shift the entire center of your gravity. Being that I have more gravitational pull than the majority of you, this is something that's important to me, particularly as an offensive lineman before. If I don't have control of my center of gravity, I lose. I get twisted, I get thrown, I get tossed, I trip, I fall. Keeping the center of our gravity positioned well is incredibly important. From playing a position in sports, even basketball, as silly as that is, um, you need to have control of your gravity. From lifting weights, if I throw a, a dumbbell above my head and I do not have good center of gravity accounting for that, it's going to fall. Or it's going to fall on me. The idea that we always are shifting, no matter what... <laughs> I have to move. I can't help it. I'm sorry. Um, the fact that we have to shift our bodies, our center of gravity, means that we are always founded on something. If we're not founded on something, then we have fallen, right? And think about that excellent trust exercise I get to used to run all the time in high school with people. You get in a circle, you put your feet together, you cross your arms, you close your eyes, and you fall, right? Backwards and let them catch you, or in a circle, you just let them pass you around, right? There's a point where you have to commit, right? You can't do this little number. Like, oh, I'm falling, right? You just, it's boogieing, it's weird. You don't want to dance in a circle of people. You have to commit, you got to fall. You have to shift your center of gravity onto another. You have to push yourself over and commit to it to fall on another's center of gravity. And the same is true for us. When we talk about this idea of the cornerstone, it's not just something that we see. It's not just something that we know is there. It's not just on the outside of the building, that stone over there. It's what we are resting on. The idea of being joined to the body, joined to the church, joined to Jesus Christ is an intimate thing. You're not just part of it. You're joined together. And so when we talk about committing your center of gravity, you got to commit. It is a true movement and shift. You see, whenever someone says, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, you also have to ask, well, fine, great, but what is your functional cornerstone? What is the center of your gravity? Because the cornerstone is the thing that sets the course for the building. And your cornerstone sets the course of your life as a whole. I've seen this happen so many times. Some people who are so frantic or, or anxious, why are they frantic? Well, because what is their functional cornerstone? 
Maybe it's success. Maybe it's acclaim. Maybe it's possessions. Your real cornerstone, the thing that you really base your life on, will always set the course of your life. Younger people, do you hear me? Kids, <laughs> what you found your life on, what you set your hope on, your trust on now, sets the course for your life. It will project the lines out into the rest of your life, and you'll be frantic. There are other people who are really just very different. For other people, essentially, your cornerstone is equilibrium, right? Stasis. This idea that things just need to stay the way they are. I just got to keep things the way that they are. Tradition, letting the normal family system, even a sick family system, stay in place for the sake of equilibrium, peace, and rest. And that's your cornerstone. That's what makes you feel secure. And so to become a Christian doesn't mean that you just change your mind. It doesn't mean that you just believe in a new set of doctrines. It's a tearing up. It's taking all of the stones of your life and instead of having them shoot off of the old cornerstone, they now shoot off the new cornerstone, Jesus. You come to Him, the living stone. You so often see frantic people, when they really make Jesus their cornerstone, they start to, to mellow out. They start to mellow out. But then on the opposite side, you have very lethargic people, too mellow, right? That when they come to make Jesus their cornerstone, they, they start to speed up. Why is this? Because, you see, to trust in Jesus means that you build off of Him. Action, build. He becomes your cornerstone. And it's not hard, I keep using this word cornerstone, it's not hard for us to find out what our functional cornerstones really are. Your cornerstone sets the course of the building, and if the cornerstone's crumbling, then the building crumbles. And so if you have a crumbling house, I told you it starts at the bottom. You have a crumbling cornerstone. You see, when the wind comes, when the storm howls, when the waves come and beat against the cornerstone of your life, the cornerstone is supposed to be the one part of your life that if it shakes, if that crumbles, then everything crumbles. And so look at your life. What are the non-negotiables in your life? What are they? Because they are your cornerstones. What are the things that you'd say, if I lose that, then I lose everything? Those are the cornerstones of your life. Some, I'm sure, are, are good, even admirable things, but they are not Jesus Christ. They cannot support the house. It will crumble. Men, particularly, this could be your job. Is it your identity? Is it who you are? Is it your destiny? If you were to lose your job, would you be less of a person? If you were to lose your job, would you lose your identity? What would happen if you were no longer a fill-in-the-blank? It's a question I have to ask. What would I, who would I be? What would happen to me if I were no longer a pastor? What does that mean? 
Does it mean I can't have joy in the Lord? Does it mean I can't be resting in Him? Do I have to? Is that my identity? Men, is it a happy wife? <laughs> is it success in the eyes of your friends? Is it an easy life? It's stress-free, at peace, as long as you provide? Is it your family? Ladies, is it your family? Your kids? Your home orderliness? Is it your parents? Is it financial security? The right fashion look or strength and success as a woman? What are the things that should matter to us? What does it look like for us to actually be built on Jesus as our unshakable cornerstone. Because when we find security in anything else, that reveals what our cornerstone is. So what does it look like for us to actually have Jesus as a life foundation, as our cornerstone? See, the beauty of this new and living temple made of people should no longer be expensive gold and precious jewels. The imperishable beauty of holiness and faith in Christians' lives, qualities which are much more accurate to who God is, much more effectively reflect the glory of God, should be what we look like, right? How? By being influenced or dominated by the Holy Spirit. We are living stones made into a spiritual house. This house isn't about its, its tables, its beds, its fancy covers, its nice pillows. It's not about any of the Instagram things. It is about our character. Our character is influenced and dominated by the Holy Spirit as a believer in Christ Jesus. We share the character of the Holy Spirit. Christians are a new temple of God under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so then what will we do? What will we be about? Well, as priests, as, as holy priests, royal priesthood, we offer not the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant, but spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices, which the New Testament tells us lots of things of what it looks like. The offering of our bodies to God as His service, for Romans 12.1. The giving of gifts to enable the spread of the gospel, Philippians 4.18. The singing of praise, Hebrews 13.15. And the doing of good and sharing our possessions, Hebrews 13.16. These examples encourage us to think that anything we do in service to God can be thought of as a spiritual sacrifice. And, and not just a sacrifice, but the important part here, acceptable to God. It's acceptable to him. It's a continual sweet aroma that ascends to his throne and brings him delight, kind of like coffee. <laughs> With this New Testament perspective on sacrifice, then all the Old Testament passages that we see about sacrificing, about serving, we can read that in a new light. We don't have to do that anymore. Anything that we do now for the glory of God that is in service to him, to his church, can be thought of as a sweet aroma coming up to the throne. And this continual sweet aroma of spiritual sacrifices must be through Jesus Christ. For only through Him are Christians qualified to be priests to God or to do anything pleasing 
in God's sight? How do we know that our sacrifices are actually accepted by God? That it is pleasing to Him? The resurrection. The resurrection shows that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was complete and it was accepted. The doctrine of the resurrection, Easter coming up, gets so overlooked. But it's the resurrection that tells us that it was a complete offering, that he indeed did drink every drop of the wrath of God, and that it was accepted. And so we know then that Jesus, who made the final ultimate sacrifice, allows us to work through him to serve God and to make spiritual sacrifices of our lives and our body as we lay our lives down for him. So these good things that we do, if they are in our own strength, or if they are for our own glory, are not a sacrifice to Him. In fact, they are a stench of the most foul kind. It is revolting to Him who is holy. But you see, under the great high priest, every single Christian can now, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 And corporate worship among Christians should always be a wonderful entrance into the very presence of God. The gathering of a multitude of lives, a group of sweet-smelling aromas, all coming together. That's what a life that is founded on the cornerstone looks like. And so what becomes of this life? This life that is straight, that is centered, that is, that is firmly joined to the cornerstone. What happens? Well, we have this great encouragement of the passage you will not be put to shame. You will not be put to shame. The point here is that if you trust Christ, God's cornerstone, you will not be disappointed. You can't lose. You can't lose. This stone will not prove faulty. If you build your life on the stone, your life will not crumble in the storm. If you hide Behind this stone, you'll be safe. If you stand on the truth of this stone, you'll not be ashamed. If you join with others in the spiritual house built on this stone, you'll be proud of your foundation and your fellowship together will stand. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. You will not be put to shame. And even more incredible... (laughs) the honor becomes yours as well. The honor becomes yours as well. You want to know why Christians get generous with their money? Do you want to know why Christians no longer mind if people come into their homes and tramp around and maybe mess up their rugs? Do you know why people don't mind being imposed on anymore? Why people, when they become Christians, aren't as selfish as they used to be? Why when you become a Christian, your priorities are skewered and other people think that you've gone off your rocker? Why? Because to you who believe, he's precious. He's precious. I mean, one thing is so precious, everything else that used to look important becomes eternally and utterly expendable to you. Nothing else matters. Nothing else else matters but him. You're free. 
the sweetness of freedom that we sang about at the beginning of today. That's where it's founded. I found life in the sweetness of freedom. We're free because nothing has us by the throat. There's nothing that we're scared to death to lose that will crumble our entire life. There's nothing that you're running scared from. Your franticness is gone because you are just absolutely in love and ravished with the beauty of Jesus Christ. If Jesus becomes the love of your life, you can say goodbye to being afraid of anything else. You will not be put to shame. If Jesus becomes the love of your life, there's a freedom unto you who believe he is precious. And so there's a great picture and promise that we have of the life while founded on the cornerstone that is chosen and precious and gives us a life that looks like that. What does your house look like? Because we enter into the warning. Humble yourselves lest you stumble. Humble yourselves lest you stumble. It says that he is a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense. So why is he a stone of of stumbling? Why is he offensive? If he's so precious, then how can he be these things? And we talk about that paradox again from Christmas. How? Okay. Don't miss the conditional clauses. I've been trying to throw them out there as much as I can, particularly just a minute ago. Whoever believes, for you who believe. And then the opposite, but for you who do not believe. How can he be a stone of stumbling? Why is he offensive? Because it's a condition. Do you believe or do you not? He's offensive because they do not believe. Not because of what he is, but because they do not believe. So what they do believe is something entirely different. Not what they should believe. They believe something else. They believe that they are the great one. They believe that they are the glorious one, that they are the gracious one, the good one, the most good. Jesus says, false. And that's offensive. I'm kind of like how God is offended when he says that he's holy and we say false. Kind of like that, except one of us is wrong. (laughs) We cannot fool ourselves. The gospel is offensive. The cross is offensive. Paul says we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Jesus himself says he is the way. There's only one way to heaven. We stand against our self-built, man-centered homes. We stand with the house of God. (coughs) Jesus is a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, because he says, I am the only one that can be built on. I am the only one that can be built on. And that's offensive because we believe that we are the great, glorious, gracious, and good ones. Jesus says, false. You're evil. 
You're inventors of evil. Your heart, in which you believe that you are so good, great, gracious, and glorious, is deceiving. It's lying to you. If you follow your heart, you will follow it straight to hell. And that's offensive. So why do they stumble? Good question, thanks for asking. Peter tells us it's because they disobey the word. He tells us exactly why. In verse 8, he says, A stumbling stone, a rock of offense, they stumble. Why? Because they disobey the word. Because they disobey the word. Literally, a good word for us to use there is rebellious. They are rebellious. Because they disobey the word means not just that they refuse to believe the gospel, though it certainly includes that, but that they are living lives of disobedience and rebellion against God generally. That is their pattern of life. That is who they are. That is what they do. In Isaiah 8, 14 through 15, where, where some of this passage is taken from, it says, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They will be snared and taken. In December when we talked about this, the idea of this stone of offense, this rock of offense, is this slab of stone upon which men fall off a cliff and dash themselves to pieces. They will fall and be broken. These people stumble and fall and dash themselves upon the rock because they disobey, Peter tells us. They are rebellious. In other words, they take this word that we just talked about in verses 1 through 3 that is tasty, that is milk and nourishment to our lives, and they take it and they don't believe it and they disobey it and they rebel against it. These are the two ways of life. And Peter so elegantly, for Peter particularly, sets up here. You believe or you don't. And so saying that you are one who believes, how can we take the principle here and apply the warning to our lives? Because if you are being built up, you will be built. If you are stumbling, you will stumble. So let's, let's say that ultimately you are being built up. How can we still take the warning and learn from this? How are you stumbling? <laughs> How are you stumbling? Where are you rebellious against the Word? How are you hearing the Word of God and disobeying it rather than savoring it and letting it nourish your soul? What in the Scriptures is offensive to you? I think it's helpful that Peter not only answered our first question of why do they stumble, but he then supplies us with an example, right? In verse 8, Stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, what? As they were destined to do. Thank you, Matt, for being gone on this Sunday that I might get to handle this one. Um, is that offensive to you? They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Is that offensive? 
See, the force of this text is to say that those who are rejecting Christ and disobeying God's word were also destined by God to such action. It's never easy for us to hear this taught in Scripture. But we have to look at how to understand this. And at the end of the day, we have to what? Trust the Word of God. Are you stumbling now over this? We'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. What other parts of Scripture are offensive to you? In the Methodist Church right now this past week or, or last week, they had a, a vote that they had to put together as a denomination, particularly over Romans chapter 1, the issue of homosexuality. And it's pretty even split at this point, but the orthodox view of homosexuality prevailed in the church vote at large. But that is something that they as a church are struggling with. Almost half the denomination is stumbling over the truth of the Word of God. It's offensive to them. And so it must be wrong? That's often what they would say. And we look at the passage for us today, as they were destined to do. Paul knows the questions that we have. Paul knows the questions that we have. In Romans 9, he asks the exact same questions that we would ask. Why would God choose Jacob and hate Esau? What did, they, what did they do? Before they left the womb, why did he love Jacob and hate Esau? Why does God say, I will have grace on who I'll have grace, mercy on who I'll have mercy? Why does he say that? What do we do with that? Paul knows the questions we have. He says in Romans 9, what right do you, as the clay, have to say to the potter, why have you made me thus? Why have you made me this way? And the way that I like to explain this, because uh, there were people that had questions after we talked about election at the beginning, this is the opposite of election that we would call reprobation, or uh, someone is either elect or reprobate, or reprobate. That particular word I don't believe is in the scriptures, whereas election is. Reprobation is the idea of being passed over, of not being elected, of not being chosen. And he says to them this idea of the clay. And, and the way that I like to explain it is I like to make pens. I'm, I'm a woodworker. And I want you to think about me as the creator of this pen. Is this pen supposed to talk back to me and say, why have you made me like this? Let's think about what it was. It was a tree. The tree was felled for one reason or another. And it was salvaged and milled into lumber that came into my possession. Now, this isn't the only bit of wood that I had. You know how fine the line is between the end of this wood on the pin and sawdust. As long as this is in my possession and I care for it, this will be a treasured object. It'll be put to good use. It will be used well. The rest of the wood on this side is somewhere I do not know. It's on my floor. It's in the vacuum. It got burnt up. Do you see how fine the line is between the same piece of wood? And in the same way, the picture that Paul is talking about is you have a lump of clay. Let's say that there's two people that compose this lump of clay. And he breaks it in half. And with one, he makes a bowl to be used 
in the temple to wash your hands by the priests. It is special. It is set apart. It is sanctified to God for holy use. And the other one he makes a chamber pot with. The pot does not say to the potter, why have you made me this? We are not God. Our foundational stumbling point is in the fact that we believe that both pieces of clay, every piece of wood, should be used for holiness. When the fact is, is that that entire lump of clay is evil. And for any of it to be used for the glory of God is grace upon grace upon grace. And so believer, today, how do you rest in encouragement in a passage like this when you come across something that's offensive? We don't deserve grace. That's the point. We don't deserve grace. So believer, you who believe, the honor comes to you. You're not just joined to the cornerstone. The honor comes to you as well. You also, dead, evil, lifeless stone, are made alive into a living stone. And as we are being built up together, we bring in other now living stones that were once dead. That's the great hope and encouragement of this passage. We're not God. We don't have a right to say to Him, why have you made me thus? What we do know is that those who stumble disobey the word. And they choose to. So for us, we're not called to understand everything. And we're not called to be able to explain everything. I can't. We're called to come and die that we might live. And we see that Jesus Himself died. The cornerstone died that we might live. This precious stone of God died. It was given for us so that the honor might be for us as well. That we partake in the honor of being joined to the cornerstone and being built up into this living house of God. What does your house look like? Are you founded on the cornerstone. Now one thing I want to make sure that we see, this is that you are being built. You are being built. The nice thing about this particular passage is that when it talks about the reprobate, it says that they are currently stumbling. It does not mean that they will always stumble. In fact, you once, believer, stumbled. In fact, it was a giant stumble and fall that broke you so that you might be parted from your own cornerstone and placed firmly on the cornerstone of Jesus for the first time. You see, without the offense of the gospel, you too would be disobeying. You too would be still on your own cornerstone rather than the cornerstone of Christ. And so to all, the gospel call is clear. Repent, die to yourself, and believe. And when you believe, you are joined to the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. You are aligned and you are a living stone now being built together. And so you who believe... Continue to build. You who do not believe, fall and be broken, lest you be broken for all eternity. And so for you who believe, you are being built. What's happening? You have the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. 
You have the cornerstone of your old life to put off, put on, right? The rest of your life is this picture. Come over here and take a, a stone that was once part of this building and take it and put it on the cornerstone of Christ. Put it on the cornerstone of Christ. You're being built up together. The rest of your life is about that. Are you anxious right now? Take that stone, put it on Christ. Every day, we are moving stones from one pile to the other. We do it through the Word. We do it with each other. And so the point is this. If you believe on this stone, you can't lose. But if you disbelieve on Him, you can't win. Human unbelief does not frustrate or defeat the ultimate purpose of God. If God plans for Jesus to be the chief cornerstone, then humans can betray Him, desert Him, deny Him, mock Him, strike Him, spit on Him, hit Him with rods, crown Him with thorns, strip Him, crucify Him, and even bury Him. But they cannot stop Him from being what God destined Him to be. The living cornerstone of a great and glorious people. Rest on that stone. Rest in that grace. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you so, so very much for the precious stone that you laid down. Father, when Christ left the heavens and put on flesh and dwelt among us, Father, he entered into our world to experience with us what we experience. But Father, he did so in a holy way, and He calls us to that holiness. Father, help us lay down our lives to see that death to ourself is the only way to life unto You. And Father, as we, as dead, evil, deceitful stones have been brought to life in You, we have been made alive into living stones. And Father, You have joined us with Your Son to, to construct this most amazing temple that is indwelt by the Spirit. And Father, given us life, living, living stones, and you, you not only joined us to your Son, but you gave us the honor as well. Oh, this is grace upon grace upon grace. So Father, let us die to the idea that we are worthy of worship. Let us die to the idea that we are worthy of being built upon. Father, let me crucify the idea that my family can be built on me. That this church can be built on its pastors. That this, our, our lives can be built on anything other than your son. Everything else will crumble. And Father, as our lives crumble around us, let us look to the cornerstone that we should be set on. Let us rest in that peace. Let us hide behind him. Let us, let us stand strong on this cornerstone. Father, we love you and we thank you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.